My name is Keith Beavers, and I'm too scared to do this, but can somebody please tell Duolingo we need to do like a little bit of vacation notification so that I don't wake up on a holiday with like, hey, it's Lily. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and you know what? I am the tastings director of Vine Pair. No, I am. I am. I am. It's here. We're here. We're here. We're the, the most famous part of Bordeaux that you know. But what actually happened, and how did the 1855 classification actually happen? Let's do it. It's always had a good location, right? Throughout these past episodes, one thing we can totally understand is that. And from there, since Romans, Roman times, antiquity, since those times, it's always had that advantage. And being a port town since antiquity, it has always had that advantage. Or has it? As Bordeaux began to develop in earnest and become a wine-growing region, eventually the largest in Europe, it did have an issue getting wines to its capital, Paris. It was too hard to get wines to there because by the time the ships got out of port and started heading north, there were various tariffs and taxes on the way. So by the time the wine actually got to where they wanted it to get Paris, the wine would be way too expensive. Paris would be ideal in France because that's where all the wealth was concentrated and these wines were getting more expensive. So what happens? Well, by the 17th century, as you could probably tell from the previous episodes, Bordeaux had two main markets, the Dutch and the British. And these two buyers could not be more different. You see, the Dutch, everything they did was to expedite for efficiency. All the contributions the Dutch gave to the wine industries in Europe were to help the Dutch make the cheapest wine they could as much as they could to get this wine throughout their entire trading system, which was all over the world. And all of the fortified wine ideas and the SO2 candles and all that were to help that happen. Even the draining of the Medoc, whether it was for agriculture or, or, or roads or because the French wanted them to, no matter what, it was to help the business run. But what was happening was all those contributions, like the SO2 candles and all this stuff, that was actually helping the Bordelais make more stable, concentrated structured wine that could actually age a little bit, and eventually for years. Which brings us to the second major buyer from Bordeaux, the British. The British had purchases on ships that had to go a much shorter distance north, and the wines were consumed in England. These were not going all over the world. So it was a shorter trip, not as, much ta not as many taxes and tariffs, 
And by the time the wine got to England, it was still stable. And as these wines start getting into England more and more, they're more structured, they're more interesting. This new style of wine in the upper class of Britain becomes vogue and they start seeking it out and demanding it, driving prices higher. And now we're starting to watch the Bordeaux we know today really begin. And this is how it really begins is these, this fashion, this trend in the upper classes of, of Britain, they start realizing if we want quality wine, we need to start asking for wine from the Maydoc. So it was enough for them at the time just to get a wine from the Maydoc because to them, that meant they, at least they were getting a wine of what they considered superior quality. As the obsession with Bordeaux progressed over the years, the requests became a little bit more specific. When they, when at first they were doing, we just want wine from the Medoc, they started realizing there were certain wines coming out of certain communes in the Medoc. And then they started asking for wines within those communes. Like, I want a Pesac. I want a Margot. Where once Grave was the place to get Bordeaux, now there are more than just Grave. There were all these other communes exciting people's palates. And more and more, these winemakers were trying to be more individual within their communes. They were doing things like, this is like anything that happens in the wine world today. I'm different than you, even though I'm in the same place, because I do this differently. That's just how wine works. We think it's normal today, but back in the day, that was kind of new. So we have all these different chateaux making wine within communes. And now the British start focusing more on the producers instead of just the communes. And it's really interesting because all this happened it's thought that all this really started happening or it's agreed upon. It started with Aubryon, which is interesting because Aubryon was the first sort of real documented chateau property that the British really fell in love with, but they're in Grave, not in the Medoc. What happened was in 1666, after the Great Fire in London, when it was being rebuilt, the current owner of Aubryon, Arnaud Dupontac, he sends his son to London. His son was supposed to go into local government, didn't want to do it. He, wanted, he liked wine and money. <laughs> so he's like, all right, son, go to London and open up a tavern, and we're going to sell our wine there to get it popular among the people of the capital city. So he goes to London. Can't remember his name. He was Philippe. And he opens up a, a tavern called Pontac Head. There's another tavern called the Royal Oak. But these two taverns sold primarily... Chateau Aubryon. Now, the thing is, the Pontac family also owned other places, other vineyards and, and chateau in um, Bordeaux, so they would also sell that. And it became so popular among the social elite of the city at the time that the word Pontac for a while was the word for Bordeaux red wine in London. So this is where it really, the, the association with a name becomes very popular. This kind of brand awareness works really well for Bordeaux in London because now other winemakers in the Medoc are starting to take notice of this and they start ramping up their quality and start attracting customers that way as well. And Specifically, three other properties gain a ton of recognition. Two of them are in Pauillac, Chateau La Tour, and Chateau Lafitte, and one is in Margot, Chateau Margot. So what happens here is 
these four winemakers, Lafitte, Latour, Margot, and Aubryon, become some of the most famous chateau or winemakers or properties in Bordeaux. And the merchants and the brokers and the trade of Bordeaux starts considering these four chateaus first growths. The success of these four chateaux caught fire in the region and producers started going, okay, quality driven, age worthy, we get it. And everyone started pivoting to this type of winemaking. The days of the claret were done. These winemakers wanted their wines to fetch the same prices as the first growth wines. And about a dozen chateaux from this new effort started gaining recognition themselves, but didn't really fetch the prices that the first growths could because of, I just, I think commercial recognition and brand loyalty. So the trade started considering them second growths. Okay, so now we have a second tier. A hierarchy is forming. This would continue because people were starting to want to break away from their communal identity. Like, I just don't want to be a Polyak wine. I want people to know my chateau. And by 1787, when Thomas Jefferson was bopping around Bordeaux, there was already a third tier, third growths. And as this drive for quality and recognition grew, by 1820, there was a fourth growth. And when we get to the 1850s, there is a complete hierarchy of five growths, first through fifth. Now, keep in mind, this is a commercial hierarchy. It was a list that was continually evolving, actually. And what happened was you had producers, you had merchants, and then you had brokers. It was the brokers that monitored everything. They would actually do visits to the properties throughout the, the growing season and through harvest and, all, and, and, and during the, the viticulture, a vinicultural process. And as the brokers found different chateaus, the list would change. And what's interesting is this is, this is fevered activity happening in Medoc. It's almost like what happened to the Grave? <laughs> but everything was so exciting that by the 19th century, the Medoc was commanding extremely high prices. And the only chateau in the Grave region that was matching that was Aubryon because of what they did in London and, of course, the quality of their wine. And because of this, Aubryon was consistently in the first growth list, even as it evolved. Of course, there were other Bordeaux winemakers out there, but the quality at the time was so concentrated in this area because of the terroir, because of the sense of place, because of the wealth and the, the ability to make these wines they were the ones that people were focusing on. That's just the way it was. It wasn't the, the greater Bordeaux area just was not. I mean, they were, they were selling wine, but just this was the focus of the time. Because this classification was a cornerstone of the way the, the, the local trade actually happened. Every merchant, every proprietor or chateau owner and broker knew exactly each property and where it was within the classification. It was a very well-known, ever-evolving list that everybody was watching. And also, these are the wines that enjoyed the majority of the distribution. You guys know how a wine trend hits. The minute it hits, you're like, I gotta go out and I gotta get it. That's what was going on here. And in the early 1800s, this was the beginning of wine books and education in wine through literature 
specifically, and Bordeaux was always part of that, and this list would show up in the texts of these books. There were also tourist guides that were getting made, and people were going to Bordeaux with their tour guides, and the classification list was in the tour guides as well. So you kind of see what's happening here. And at some point when all this was going on, it just became normal that the consumer was able to appreciate wine at a higher price. And as Bordeaux became the largest fine wine region in the world, it was decided to streamline pricing. Between the proprietor, the merchant, and the broker, a number for a vintage would be agreed upon, and that was how much Bordeaux classification wines were that year. Because there were so many wines within this classification list that they thought it would be too dizzying, it would break the whole system if each individual proprietor had a different price. So by the time 1855 comes around, Bordeaux is sitting real nice. It's a large, fine wine region that makes age-worthy wines that are the darling of the British market and now beyond. You know, here I was going to do a whole thing about Napoleon III, but there's so much other cool stuff happening with the story. I'm not going to really go into him, but what I will say is that he was the president, then he wanted to be president again, and he couldn't, so he did a coup, became a dictator, brought on the Second Empire of France, but the big deal with him is he was all about modernization. He modernized the banking system, he built the Suez Canal, he built parks, boulevards, did a lot of reconstruction of Paris, and he also modernized French agriculture. So in 1855, Napoleon III says, I'm going to do this thing called a universal exposition. I want, I want goods from all over France and beyond to, to be showcased in Paris to show how amazing France is. And it was held in this big, beautiful rotunda building just off the Champs-Élysées. So Bordeaux's city chamber of commerce was like, we are sending Bordeaux to this thing. But the only problem was... They could only send six bottles per chateau. So with thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this thing, just kind of milling around and trying to enjoy all these products from France, no one was really going to be able to try these wines. So what did they do? They came up with a new idea. And that was, we were going to have this display of all these bottles, but we're also going to commission this large regional Bordeaux map to help better communicate the superior quality of our wines. And to do that, we're going to have a list or a roster of Chateau to represent that. And who are the best people in Bordeaux to task with making that list? The brokers. Because you had the proprietors who knew their wine very well, but not beyond. Then you had the merchants who understood the market, but that's basically it. Then you had the brokers who did regular visits, knew each property, were really kind of steeped in this whole list. So they were tasked with coming up with a list of the best of the best for this map. The letter of request from the city of Bordeaux's Chamber of Commerce to the Brokers Union was drafted on April 5th, 1855, saying they would like, quote, a list of all the red-classed growths in the department as exact and complete as possible specifying to which of the five classes each of them belonged and in which commune they were located, unquote. Oh, and you have less than a month to turn this around. What? Brokers are like, no prob. 
We have this classification system we've been working with for years and we know it so well. We have all the sources we need to get a list together. And by April 18th, 1855, they had produced the list. And this list, wine lovers, is the 1855 classification of Bordeaux. A list that over a hundred years later is one of the most authoritative references in the wine world. It's a list that has not really changed since 1855. Well, there was one change in the September of 1855, but then the most famous one was in June of 1973 when Moton Rothschild made it into the first growth section, making it five first growths instead of four. And that's the thing that doesn't, that's not a really, that's not a very surprising thing. I mean, it's surprising. It's, it's interesting that nothing's ever made it into this classification ever before. But the thing is when the brokers were making this list, they weren't looking at the previous vintage. They weren't looking at the previous 10 vintages of these chateaus. This was a long term drawn out list of consistency of quality and fine winemaking over years. So when the list was made, it was made considering these properties that have been consistent for quite some time. And obviously they've been consistent ever since. There are arguments about the 1855 classification, meaning there's nothing about the 1855 classification that says you can't change it. But according to the Bordelais, these chateaus deserve to be there and they continue all these years later to produce the same fine wine quality they always have. Every vintage is different. There are good and difficult years, but this is the 1855 classification because now this classification is primarily used as a promotional tool. Yes, the quality is there, but today when you hear about Bordeaux and you're in wine, you pretty much you probably think of the 18 the oh, 1855 classification. Those are all those famous chateaus. I mean, it's just to this day, it's what defines the left bank of Bordeaux, if not Bordeaux in general. But speaking about the left bank, what was going on with the right bank? What was going on over there? I mean, you had antiquity, you had Osonius, the philosopher in in Roman times saying he loved his vines and his wines and it's thought that he was over on the right bank in the Centimillion area. What was going on over there? Well, let's talk next week. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week.